Who cares, right? Who cares? Who cares what I phone? Who cares what I do with my time? Who cares how much I drink? Who cares what I do? It's not a ruin their own lives. Go right ahead. It's not my problem. I can do what I want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Who cares? Those words are like the, the mantra for society today. They're, and, and honest, a fair amount of the time, we just don't maybe say them out loud all of the time, right? Because really, who cares? It's first and foremost, God cares. God cares, and God cares a lot. He cares about what we say and what we do because it impacts our relationship with him. God cares. He cares because sin that, that sometimes we're blind to or sometimes we want to pretend, ignore, excuse as not being significant, as not being important. It doesn't matter. Who cares? Well, God says, I do because it actually impacts your well-being. And more importantly, it impacts your salvation and your eternity. God cares because that very sin that we want to sometimes pretend isn't sin, not only does it do damage to us, but God says you don't need to live in that guilt. You don't need to, to live in that shame because I already paid for it. I mean, I paid the ultimate price for it to, to wash it from your record, to forgive you and God wants you to know how much he cares, how deeply he loves you and how intimately and personally he knows and cares and loves you. In fact, so much that he knows how many hairs are on your head and he knows both before shower and after shower, before brushing your hair and after. He knows both times. It's an ongoing tally that God knows because that's how well he knows you. And he cares about you because you are his child and he wants to spend forever with you. And because we are God's children, he wants us to care, to care about him and our relationship with him and to care about our relationships with other people, especially within the, the family of believers, the Christian family. God wants us to care because he wants us to look out for one another because, well, we're family and family cares. You may not always think that, but it really it doesn't matter how dysfunctional or messed up a family you may or may not have grown up in or, or even be a part of now, we all know that family is supposed to care for one another. Right? That's why children have a desire, an expectation to be hugged and told that they're loved. That's why parents hold up two-year-old two artistic renderings like, and study them like they're hanging in an art museum somewhere. Right? Because parents care. It's why we go to practices and games and concerts and performances. It's why we gather together for birthdays and anniversaries and baptisms and confirmations. We do all of that because we are family and family cares. 
But maybe that isn't your experience with the family that you grew up in or that was, you were raised in. Maybe that family didn't care. Maybe it was because of apathy. Maybe it was because of, of fighting and bickering. Maybe it's because family was separated by miles or time zones. Maybe it's because family is separated because there are things that separate them that they're just unwilling to work through. But there is a family that God wants you to know cares. Cares about you and cares for you. It's the family that you are a part of by faith. And that's why more than 40 times in the New Testament, God gives instructions to believers and their instructions of things to do with one another and for one another. Literally more than 40 times he says, do this for one another. There are 40 one another phrases. That's not even counting all the each others. He says, instruct one another, encourage one another, Lift up one another. Watch out for one another. All of these one another's that God wants us as a family of believers to do for one another, to care for one another. And there's, there's all kinds of them. And so this morning we could pick any one of those sections of Scripture that are just filled with instructional truths. Sections like this from Romans 12 where God says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality Bless who, those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, there's enough in those verses for a whole series of sermons and probably several weeks of soul-searching and, and probably repentance, right? As God talks to us about how we are to care for one another and treat one another. But this morning, instead of, of reading one of those instructional sections, I want to give you an example. And there's plenty of them in the Bible, but there's one that, that kind of stood out, and I, I think it's worth talking through and studying this morning to see what it means that family cares for one another. It's a section of the Bible that you're probably actually fairly familiar with, even if you're not a Bible reader. Let me give you a little bit of backstory. God's people, God had been leading his people for a millennia in various forms, right? Through different leaders, judges. But God's people, their wandering hearts, they saw all the nations around them and they all had kings and they said, God, enough. We want a king. And God said, I really don't think you do. You don't realize what kings do. 
they tax and they rule and all these other things. And he said, we really want a king. And God said, I don't think you do. Yeah, we do. God said, okay. And so Saul became the first king of the nation of Israel. And Saul had a son named Jonathan. And both Saul and Jonathan were, were brave warriors. They were valiant in battle. But neither Saul nor Jonathan nor any other warrior, any other soldier in all of Israel was brave enough to face the challenge that came next. See, the Philistine army invaded and battle lines were drawn up. And every morning, the Philistine champion, his name was Goliath, would come out. And this was a guy who makes you and me look tiny. He was almost 10 feet tall. His armor was 125 pounds. He had a massive sword, a huge spear. He had somebody else just to carry his shield. It was so big. And he would come out and he would laugh and he would mock and he would insult and he would challenge. Hey, send somebody out one-on-one. We'll do one-on-one battle, winner take all. Well, nobody was quite crazy enough to go hand-to-hand against this monster. And so every day, Goliath would come out, and not only would he insult the army, but he would insult their God. Until one day, a young man named David was sent to go bring his brothers some supplies out on the front line. And David heard Goliath mocking God And he was outraged that nobody would do anything about it. He couldn't believe that somebody didn't have the courage and the faith to go and fight this monster who was taking God's name in vain and laughing at the God who made him. And so David did what nobody else was willing to do. He went to fight Goliath. And Saul, the king, said, Whoa, 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 buddy. If you're going to do that, you need to wear armor. And he tried to give David his armor, the king's armor, and it's hard to move. It's too big for him. He wasn't used to wearing it, and he said, forget it. I'm going like I came. He took his sling, and he picked up a few stones, and he went into battle against a giant. And you probably know the story. David killed Goliath. Because David didn't just go into battle with a sling and some stones. David went into battle with firm trust in God. That this was God's battle, not his. And David won. And David's defeat of Goliath turned into a defeat of the entire Philistine army. They all fled. It was a rout. And David was the hero. That's good, isn't it? And that's where 1 Samuel chapter 18 picks up the first verse of our text this morning. After David had finished talking with Saul, the king, Jonathan, the king's son, became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Now, keep in mind, David and Jonathan have no connection, no blood connection. They're not relatives. They didn't know each other before this. David's a shepherd. He lives out in the boonies. He came into town kind of a little ripe from being out in the fields. Jonathan is the the prince. He lives in the palace. These two don't know each other, and yet, for whatever reason, 
Jonathan instantly liked and cared about David. Now, some have tried to make this into some kind of different kind of relationship, a romantic relationship or something like that. It's not. David ended up marrying Jonathan's sister. And more than that, this is really just Jonathan doing what Jesus said. Remember, he said, love each other as I have loved you. That's what Jonathan did. That brings us to verse 2. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Saul, the king, saw holy catfish. This kid is brave like none other. He went out and just defeated the army. He literally rallied the troops. You're not going home, buddy. You're not taking care of sheep anymore. You're staying right here. I'm going to train you up. You're going to live in my court. You're going to be one of my warriors. We're going to do great things together. You're going to fight battles and do great things for this country. You're a hero. Now put yourself in Jonathan's sandals for a moment. I mean, yeah, David's buddy, right? David's cheerleader. This guy was a hero. We're going to celebrate and rejoice at his bravery and his heroism. He, he saved my dad's skin and he, he defended the kingdom and he defended God. This, these are good things. But you're going home, right? Because there's only room in this palace for one hero. And it used to be Jonathan. It was one thing when when David's just a shepherd boy and he came and he fought a cool battle and now, all right, thanks, buddy, go home, hit the bricks. But Saul said, no, I want you to stay. That's a problem because David's the hero and remember who Jonathan is. He's the prince, right? And you know what happens when the king dies in most monarchies? Who becomes the next king? The son, the oldest son, Jonathan, and who is lurking, who is now living in the palace courts that the entire nation is hailing as a hero? Not Jonathan. How would you feel? Angry? Resentful? Jealous? What do you think that would lead to? Smearing David? Undermining him? Maybe even sending him out on missions that you knew were suicidal? Trying to do anything and everything you could to take him out, to get him out of here, to ruin him, even if it meant killing him? We all know that feeling, right? And we know the feeling of when the spotlight shifts. And it's not on me anymore. I'm not the center of attention. I'm not, maybe I'm not even getting attention. It's not about me. It's not about my idea. It's not about my honor. It's not about people looking to or looking at me become marginalized, I've become set aside, I've become not important. And how does that make you feel? When you get brushed aside, well, it happens at work, right? It happens in life. 
And I'll be honest, it even happens at church. It happens with Christian family. When, when the spotlight isn't on you, when, when you become not the center, when pastor doesn't give you the same amount of time and attention that he used to or that you want him to, when there are, are other people and you don't get to talk to everybody that you used to like to talk to, when there's more stuff to do and more chairs to set up and more coffee to make and, and I can't just mingle when it's not about me anymore and there's more people and, and different ways of doing things and how do you handle it? Do you get hurt? And stay hurt? Do you do what Romans 12 said? Do you rejoice with those who rejoice? Or do you get annoyed with those who annoy you? Frustrated with those who frustrate you. Angry with those who really haven't done anything wrong. But in your mind, they have. It's easy to hold on to those hurts. It's easy to let your relationship with pastor sour because of something or somebody else, right? It's easy to, to resent people, even, even guests, right? Even new members that we rejoiced with a week ago and now I'm annoyed because they sat in my chair and they took my donut. It sounds silly, doesn't it? It sounds so silly and yet, isn't that what we do? It might be a donut and it might not be a chair, but we tend to pick at little things and let those just eat at us. Because here's the reality. It's our second takeaway this morning that I care a lot. You and I both do. We all care. We care a lot. But we mostly care about ourselves. That's something that's really important to understand. We said it earlier. We admitted it, right? Now you had to say the words because I wrote them. But we admitted, I'm hardwired with sin. See, with those words, we weren't just saying, yeah, I do stuff that God says not to do. I say things that God doesn't want me to say. We're admitting that on a deeper level, sin lives in us. That we have sin, not just that we do sin. And what that means is that it, it corrupts at our very most basic level, at what we make first in our lives, what we set our hearts and our priorities on, so that we think about and care about above anyone else, even God, ourselves. And that's a problem. But it explains a lot of things, doesn't it? It explains why, why you can come into a conversation and you can immediately think about how this affects you. It's how you can walk into a situation and you can think, ooh, what can I get out of this? How can I make this work for my benefit? It's how you can walk, be a part of something and it has nothing to do with you and you think about, boy, this is going to cost me. Even if it's just costing me in time and energy to sit here and listen to you because really, who cares? See, there's a problem, and it's not that we don't care. 
It's a problem that we care about ourselves. That's where the vast majority of our care goes. And this is not a new problem, right? We said it's a result of sin being hardwired into us. Well, guess what that means? That every person that sins, every person that is a sinner, which is every person, has this problem. And so, well, then, then it must not be a big deal because everybody has it. Everybody struggles with it. Everybody has, deals with this. But Jesus says that's not the case. It is a big deal. Jesus' disciples one time had an argument going. Do you know what their argument was about? These 12 guys that spent more time than any other human being alive in the history of the world with Jesus, the Savior, with God himself. And you know what they argued about? Which one of the 12 was the greatest? Yeah. And Jesus said, oh my goodness. Guys, you have so missed the point. And you're showing your sin. Because a sign of greatness in this world might be how many people serve you, how many people you have power over, how, many, how much more money and stuff you have than other people. But that's not the way God sees greatness. God sees greatness in how much and how many you serve. And then he said, Words that are just incredible. These words from Mark. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And really, that's for the many, for all, right? The Son of Man, God himself, Jesus, he didn't come to be served. He didn't come to have people fawn over him and, and gush over him and, and bring him things and tell him how great he was. Did he actually deserve that? Yes, he did because he's God, but that's not why he came. And what's amazing is that's not what people did. Instead, people rejected him, and people still reject him. People struggled with his words, and people still struggle with his words today. People only wanted him to help them when it was for their benefit. And people still only want Jesus when I need something from him, and I see the need. But Jesus came because he cared. He cared about you he cared about me and he cared about the billions of other people that have ever and will ever walk this planet. He came because he cared about you and me and everyone else. And he cared because he knew we were hopeless and we were helpless without him. We were, we were lost. That there was no way to save ourselves from our sinful and selfishness. And so he came to rescue us from ourselves, from sin. And he gave his life, his very life, right? As the ransom payment to save you and me and make the payment for everybody else. Jesus came to save because he cares. And here's what that means. It's our third takeaway this morning. That Jesus lived and he died because he cares about me. And he cares about everyone else. 
See, that means that God loves you. And he loves the person sitting next to you. And the people singing with you. And the people struggling right alongside. And because you know how much God loves you, because you know by faith God's love in your heart, you know what Jesus has done, you love. You love your Lord. You love Jesus. And you love other people because he does. It's that, that exact faith that Jonathan showed, right? Jonathan, the guy who, who easily could have been, and maybe even humanly speaking, should have been resentful and jealous. Take a look at what he does. Verses 3 and 4. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Jonathan made a covenant with David, a promise, right? A promise that he was always going to care about and care for him. And then he gave him his robe. He gave this lowly shepherd the prince's robe. He gave the, the hero the prince's robe. He gave the threat to the throne the prince's robe. And then he gave him his weapons. I'm guessing that David had never touched cloth as, as fine as that. He'd never held weapons so skillfully crafted. Jonathan gave this amazingly selfless act. Why? Because he cared and he was filled with a Christ-like love. A Christ-like care for David. That genuine care and that genuine concern, it wasn't a one-time thing either. If you read through the rest of 1 Samuel 18, read through chapter 19, read, read through chapter 20, I really encourage you to do that, to see what it means that Jonathan cared. Because Saul, who wanted David in his, in his court, pretty soon didn't want David in his court. And he became irrationally paranoid about David. And he, he tried to kill him and he tried to have him killed multiple times. But Jonathan repeatedly would not just care about David and, and not just like care about him when it was easy, but when it was messy. When the king himself is trying to kill someone and gives a direct order, if you see him, you kill him. And he disobeyed because he cared about David. Instead, what he did is he stood up for his friend. He talked to his dad and he reminded him of what David had done for him. The bravery David had shown, the integrity, the honor. David did all this for you, dad, for, for God. He restored the relationship between David and Saul multiple times. He was there for his friend in his darkest times. He was there with him. He was there for him because he cared like Jesus cares. He cared with that Christ-like, selfless love. And it's that same love that, that flows in you and me because, well, because you know Christ. Because you know what Jesus has done for you. You know the depth of his love for you. That he gave himself. He came not to be served, 
but to serve, to live and die for you, to save you, to rescue you, to give you eternity with him. And that's what flows in your hearts. Let it, let it flow every day. Hear that good news. Trust it. Live in it. Because when you do, when you know that love, you know what comes out? When that love is in your heart, in your mind, and in your soul, you know what comes out of your mouth and in your actions? Love. Christ-like love. Genuine care. It brings us to our, our last takeaway this morning. That I love and care about others. And, and I'd even say we start with our family, right? Because I know true love. Not the pitter-patter of, of frozen kind of true love, but God's love. That's true love. Let me give you an example of it. Let me give you two examples. I can't tell you how many people have asked in the last three weeks how my dad's doing since his surgeries. It's incredible to me. This is a guy that most of you don't know or barely know. But you know that I care, and you care about me. And, and the number of people, the number of times that have shown genuine care and concern is incredible. Let me give you another example. A year ago, at one of our life groups, one of our families shared that there was some conflict with one of their family members. And we prayed, right? And we hugged, and we said, hey, that stinks, we're here for you. We carried each other's burdens. And then this last week at our life group, that same family said, you know what happened? God happened. And this week, a, a break in the dam with our loved one and our relationship, it's not all the way back, but it's, it's good. And I don't know if there was a dry eye at that life group. And people went, oh, that's such good news, and gave hugs. And, and again, we prayed and prayers of thanksgiving. Why? Because we care. Because we show love and compassion, and we carry each other's burdens, and we celebrate with each other, and we rejoice with each other, and we pick each other up, and we walk together through this messy life. And we do it with the unshakable foundation and the constant good news that Jesus is our Savior. And because of that, we love and we care because Jesus loves. Amen.